So now would you hear the word of the Lord this morning? We continue on in the Psalms, and we will be in Psalm 82. I invite you to follow along as you hear the word of the Lord. Psalm 82. A Psalm of Asaph. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray before we go into this text. Heavenly Father, we trust in your word. It is our authority. It is our guide. And we pray that you would teach us this morning through the power of the Holy Spirit who lives in this text and has breathed life into it for our good. So would you teach us graciously this morning through it? It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. All right, here's my opening comment on this psalm. I wrote this out, word for word. In my 34 years of life, in 20 plus years of being a Christian, in 10 plus years of being in church leadership, I've never heard a sermon or even much teaching on what we're about to look into today from Psalm 82. <laughs> That's my opening comment. Psalm 82 is a puzzle. This is a tough text. This is a tricky text. I saw some of the looks on your faces as I was reading it. That's the look I had on my face as I was reading it this week. And yet, while I am in no means an expert on this, I have learned a lot from this text this week in preparation for this sermon. And I, I really do trust that the Holy Spirit has something to teach each of us this morning in it. And I think even by just attempting to learn something about a tough psalm, I think we're communicating something as a church that is really important to understand about what Christianity is, which is that every part of the Bible is useful for teaching, correction, rebuke, and training in righteousness. All of it is God-breathed, including Psalm 82. No, no part of the Bible is off-limits. And though there are some hard, mysterious things that we have to learn in the Bible, and even if our understanding is a bit foggy on a text like this in advance, there's something beautiful about this text. And I think there's a humility that we can display even by choosing uh, to go into a text that at first seems uh, different. Or it's almost like, how is this in the Bible? At my first glance, I'm not sure I understand how this connects with other parts of the scripture. 
So there's a humility here in understanding the authority of the scripture, that we can learn something from it. So St. Augustine, uh, back in the early centuries of the church, said, I think I've said this before, the top three virtues of a Christian are humility, humility, and humility. And so we're going to exercise that this morning by coming under the authority of God's word together. So the topic today, as you see right from the beginning of Psalm 82, is the divine counsel. God has taken his place among the divine counsel. There are a couple of interpretations as to what this means, and we'll get into that in just a moment. But before I get into that any further, I would like to recommend a resource to you because my 30 minutes here will only get you so far down the road. Um, The resource I'm going to recommend for you is actually a YouTube video series. And it's put together by an organization called The Bible Project. And they have a series of seven videos that are entitled um, Spiritual Beings. And in these seven videos, they discuss in part the divine counsel, but also some of the other things that are necessary to understand what the Bible talks about when it talks about this divine counsel, which we'll get into in just a moment. But those videos are really good. They're five to 10 minutes. There's seven of them. So you can about, in about a half hour, you can walk away with a lot more understanding of what the scriptures are teaching about this divine counsel. Because I do think it takes us into a new place that maybe many of us haven't been taught before. Like I said, my 34 years of life have not given me great teaching on this subject. So I kind of had to, I had to catch up a little bit this week in advance of this. But as I caught up, the scriptures became plentiful to where there's just a lot of scriptures we're going to look at today that help teach us about this. But here's an opening, an opening illustration for us just to kind of get us going the right direction. I heard this uh, for the first time in a book about a year ago when I was reading. It's a book by a man named Andrew Root, but he was putting together this hypothetical scenario. He said, imagine you're on an airplane and you're, you're just departing the airport. So you've walked onto the airplane, you've sat down, everybody's there, they shut the doors, and you begin the taxiing process where you're going out towards the runway, preparing for your turn to go into the air to fly. And so at this point, everything seems normal. Everything seems fine. Great. And then you hear the intercom come on and the pilot is about to start talking. And if you've ever flown on an airplane, you know that's probably not a good thing if the, if the pilot's about to say something uh, before you leave. And so your mind goes to, is there a mechanical problem? And we're going to need to turn around. Is, is there bad weather ahead? And we're going to be delayed. Did someone just have a heart attack in first class and now we need to turn around and get the medical attention? All these worst case scenarios are coming through your mind. What is the pilot about to say? Inconvenience. And imagine this is what you heard from the pilot. Hello, everybody. I apologize for this inconvenience, but the co-pilot and I were just discussing that he and I both have a funny feeling about the spiritual things that are in the air between us and our final destination. So in light of the spiritual beings that are in the air, we have decided that it is unsafe for us to fly today. And so we're canceling your flight. Can you imagine if that's what you heard? They're canceling the flight because of worry about the spirits in the air. 
between us and wherever you're flying? Has anybody ever heard that on an aeroflate? I've never heard that. That's not something you hear in our modern, rationalistic, contemporary world. Acknowledgement of spiritual things happening in the air is just not something that rational people think about or talk about. And yet, as we go back 3,000 years to the Bible's times, it is something that they talked more and more about. And so as we go into this text this morning, that's the world we're entering into, is a world where spiritual beings were more acknowledged than they are today in our post-enlightenment world. And so it's going to take a little bit of a mental hurdle to get us there, but that is the world of the ancient Near East and the Bible. And so as we look into this text this morning, I'm going to give you three big points, because I always give you three points. Uh, But the first point is there's probably more to life than you initially think. Point number two is there's probably more to you as a person than you probably think. Point number three is there's probably more to justice than you probably think. So life, you, and justice, there's more to all of it that this text can lead us into. But we have to begin first with this idea of the divine counsel in verse 1. There's more to life and reality than you probably think. So as I mentioned this idea of spiritual beings in the air, um, here's another image for you. Uh, I was thinking about this this week. Uh, Think back to maybe the first job that you got. Maybe you worked in retail or uh, at a restaurant or something like that. Before taking a job, if you go into like a shoe shop to shop for shoes, you experience the shop itself. Okay, here's the shoes, here's the men's shoes, here's the women's shoes, here's the cashier's desk. That is my experience of the shoe shop. But imagine you take a job at the shoe shop. You get then opened up into a new door at the very back of the store that takes you into a whole new part of the business that you probably knew was there, but never really acknowledged because you didn't work there or have any experience there. And then through that back door is where the rest of the business takes place. That's where employees stack their coats when they come in in the morning. That's where they take their lunch break. That's where some of the office business is kept. That's where the deliveries come in. It's a whole new door, a whole new world behind the reality that everybody else sees. And that's a little bit what we're going to be trying to discover today is that world behind the world that we usually understand and see, kind of the back door that we're looking at. And so to put it bluntly, there is a spirit world at work in our world, too, that many of us probably are aware that exists, but don't ever really fully acknowledge, even in a city like Salem, where it's probably more acknowledged than most places, still most of us on a daily basis, don't really operate as if there's a spiritual world at work as well. And so there's this idea of spiritual beings that are are real, that the Bible acknowledges, things like angels and demons and Satan and the like. And in the Bible, the Hebrew word that are used to describe these spiritual beings as a category is the Hebrew word Elohim, which some of you maybe have heard that word before, and a lot of times it's translated God, as in the one God. But actually, one of the things I discovered this week is that the Hebrew text uses that word to describe it as a category for other gods as well, the Elohim, the spiritual beings. And so if you're reading it in Hebrew, you see Elohim, it could be 
the one true God, or it could be this idea of the spiritual beings. And sometimes in English, that's translated gods with a lowercase g, which probably takes us by surprise at first because we're not used to acknowledging gods. And so what are we thinking about with gods and what is the Hebrew text thinking about with gods? It should be said here quickly that the Bible does pretty quickly distinguish Israel's God from among the other gods. So Israel has their own special name for their God, Yahweh. Or if you see it in your text, it's capital L-O-R-D, the Lord. That's the Hebrew word for Yahweh. Israel's special understanding of the one true God among all the other spiritual beings that are at work in the world. And so throughout the Bible, uh, and the Old Testament particularly, there's times where they distinguish, you know, the Lord is the God of gods or the Lord of lords. He is the king over all things. So he's not one of many. He is the one above all. There is only one true God, and he is Yahweh, the God of gods. So Deuteronomy 10, Psalm 136, Daniel 2, just a couple of places where the one true God is distinguished. And yet, nonetheless, the point is, again, that there's a spiritual world that is unseen, that is at work in the world you and I live in as well, where a true battle is being waged. And that's why I say there's more to life than probably what you think or acknowledge on a daily basis. Paul in the New Testament acknowledges this in a number of different ways as well. And so, again, it can be confusing because there's all these different terms that are used. And so Paul, for instance, uses at least a couple of different phrases. And depending on your translations, it could be different. But he'll say things like the elemental spirits of the world in Colossians 2 or Galatians 4. Or he talks about the powers and principalities at work in this present world. Places like Romans 8 and Ephesians 6. Where he talks about rulers and authorities in 1 Corinthians 15 or Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3 or even Colossians 1. All these are describing the same kind of reality, this idea of a, of a spiritual world that is at work beyond what we can see, beyond just the rationalistic, enlightened view that we have in the modern world. And then there's Satan himself, which is actually a title of a person who is at work, Satan just means the accuser. It's a title more so than a name. And he's called the accuser in some places. And in Ephesians, he's called the prince of the power of the air. Or in 2 Corinthians, he's called the god of this world. So you can see how this can get pretty confusing pretty quickly. Because there's all these different titles, all these different ideas of what is happening. And you can't see any of it. And yet, I think... As we live out our lives, I think we feel it. All of us have felt that there is, seems to be more going on in our life than what we just see in front of us. Why does life feel like it goes so uphill sometimes? Why do I feel tricked into things that I know are not right, but, but I'm kind of being led into? This is part of the spiritual climate that we live in. And so all that brings us to this idea of the divine counsel. What is it? And surprisingly, it actually is brought up a number of times in the Old Testament. 
you know, you may be thinking, I was talking to Marcos, for instance, this morning, you said you watched the Avengers last night. And so I had this idea, you may be thinking of the divine council as like, oh, it's all these gods brought together at like a heavenly courtroom and they're sitting together around a board table. That is not what the divine council is. It's not like the Buddha and Jesus and the Hindu gods and Muhammad are all sitting together and figuring out the world. That is not what the divine council is. And that's not when we see the word gods, that's not what's happening. Theologically speaking, the Bible talks about one true God. And so no part of this text is to lead us down the rabbit trail of polytheism or many gods. The Bible is is so clear that there's one God. And yet here we learn about a divine council. So what are the ideas here? You do see this divine council in places like 1 Kings 22, where it says this host of heaven is how it's described there, comes together and they're trying to figure out how to take down the evil king of Israel, Ahab. And so they consult together to figure out how this is gonna be dealt with. They're called the host of heaven there. Or particularly maybe the place where you would hear about it the most is in the book of Job. Job chapter one. It talks about the sons of God coming together who present themselves before the Lord and Satan also came among them. And that's when they ask if they can, if they can have Job and tempt him and try him. Psalm 89 talks about the council of the holy ones or Psalm 29 talks about the heavenly beings. So those are some of the examples of, what, of where the Old Testament brings them up. But maybe the deeper question you're wondering, because I was wondering this this week, is why is there a divine council at all? If God is the one true God, why is he counseling with other divine things at all? Isn't he just sovereignly and graciously and lovingly in control? Because I was getting a little anxious at certain points of this week, like, I don't really want these other people involved in the daily activities of the world. I want God involved. So why is the divine counsel even a part of things? Can't he just control things by himself? Well, of course he can. <laughs> of course he can control things by himself. But the Bible does show us a God who chose from the beginning of time to, to share his authority among this heavenly host and to give authority in a beautiful delegating way through created beings. Again, not through co-equal gods, not through competitors, but through created beings, ones that he created. So things like angels, heavenly hosts, divine figures were given a place with him to rule the world. But as you know, if you kind of take a, a deep, a, deeper dive into some of the tougher theology of the Bible, you'll know that the origin of Satan or of demons or the evil one is a rebellious angel, a rebellious heavenly being who was part of this divine staff team of God. That's you know, the videos I told you earlier, they kind of described it as the heavenly beings being like the divine staff team of God, who God would kind of come together with and then deploy in authoritative ways uh, on the earth. Satan was a fallen example of someone who took that small bit of authority he was given and rebelled because he wanted to be God himself. And so God threw him out of the heavenly host and condemned him. And now Satan is the, the deceiver. 
And so that is the fall. He is the fallen figure who wanted to be God himself, who then other demons followed and other heavenly beings who have been leading a grand rebellion and delusion in our world ever since. And that's why the story of the Old Testament is so sticky with delusion and deceit and rebellion. So with this rebellion then comes the delusion of false gods, you know, idols. You know, and, then, and throughout the Bible, again, so 1 Corinthians 8 is one example where you know, it says there's no God but one. For although there may be many so-called gods in heaven or on earth, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things and for whom all things exist. So these false gods, these idols come as part of this grand delusion. But then also many false hopes, things like the, the lure of money, the lure of sex, the lure of power. All these things come from this grand deception of this divine council that has rebelled against God and is now ushering a counterattack against the God of the universe. And there's a competition from the deceiver of the world, Satan and his rebellious team. And so all that is to say, that's one way to think about this divine council is these heavenly beings who were given a gracious purpose to be delegates of God's kingdom, ambassadors of his, to do beautiful things, and yet there was a rebellion. That's one interpretation. There's actually another interpretation, and that's where you and I come in. So look at verse 6 of chapter 82, for instance. Chapter 6, we're going to come back to verses 2 and 5 in a moment, but verse 6 says, this is God speaking when he says, I, I, God, said, you are gods. He's talking to the divine council here. You are gods, sons of the Most High, all of you, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. So point number two here is not only is there more to life, there's this spiritual world that's been going on from the beginning of history that's been at work, but there's more to you and me than we first think as humans. You know, Jesus, this was stunning to me. Jesus himself quoted Psalm 82, this particular psalm, this difficult, tricky psalm in John chapter 10. In the context, I'll just explain it instead of reading it to you. You can read it. It's in John 10, verses 24 to 39, if you want to look that later. But I'll explain the story to you. Jesus is talking with the Pharisees. And the Pharisees say, Jesus, can you just tell us plainly who you are? If you are God, can you just tell us plainly? And so Jesus begins to explain, and he says, you know, God is my father. And then he says famously, I and the father are one. And you know what the Pharisees decided to do at that point? They bent down picked up some stones and they were about to chuck these stones at Jesus to stone him to death because they said, you are blaspheming Jesus because you just said that you are God's son. And you know what Jesus quotes back to them? Psalm 82. He says in, Psalm, in, in John 10, uh, in verse 34, he says, Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? Quote, I said, you are God's. If he then called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God. 
Jesus turns it right back on them quickly. Basically saying, how can you say it's a problem that I'm saying I'm the son of God if your scriptures say that you are all sons of God? So what is he saying here? I think in part, and this is where there's a split debate on who this divine counsel is. The other interpretation is, is that this divine counsel is humans who have authority on the earth to make decisions, to institute justice, to lead nations, to lead families. And in some sense, we are all part of this divine counsel together as human beings. You know, and there is there's a lot of scriptural support to this one because it does seem like Jesus is referring to these folks as humans from Psalm 82. But other places throughout the scripture talk about the authority that God has given to authority figures on earth. So Romans 13 you know, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. And so one of the most compelling arguments for this is that the tasks that are given in verses 2 through 5, these ideas of, of, of instituting justice in the world, those are actually instructions that were given to Israel's judges back in the Old Testament, to human judges to execute justice and goodness on the earth. And so human rulers are kind of put right next to the spiritual rulers throughout the Old Testament as people who are supposed to lead well. And so just to take a step back for a moment for you and I, like how does this apply for us? I think in one sense what this does for us is it shows the deep value that God has on human beings to have authority in his creation. I mean, think about the beginning of human beings. Genesis 1 and 2, God creates humans and he says, we are very good. We are the highest of his creation. And he gives us authority to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over all things that are, he has created. And so humans have been given an authority as co-laborers, co-partners with God and his creation to exercise justice and goodness on God's earth in his universe and so again there's all kinds of scriptures that come out when you begin to see the value that god places on humans psalm 8 is one of them when i look at your heavens the work of your fingers the moon and the stars which you've set into place what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you care for him you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. And you've given him dominion over the works of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All the sheep, ox, beasts of the field, birds, fish of the sea, whatever passes along. Uh, and First Corinthians even goes as far as to say that, you know, Paul says that humans are actually given the ability to judge angels themselves. That's the high calling that humans have as authority figures on earth. So that's why I say there's more to you than you think. Do you hear how much value for authority that God has given his creation, humans, you, to be part of his counsel in one interpretation? You know, and, and even in 2 Peter, it talks about how humans are even able to, to partake in the divine nature of God. In, so, in some sense, we can grow into a deep understanding of the divine and even in some sense, take on that fullness of his image himself. And now you can see where this could go dangerous quickly because they use the word gods here. 
Verse six, I said, you are gods. So you could ask the question fairly from this text and some religions have, Mormonism for one, uses this text explicitly to argue that you are a God. So am I a God? Are you a God? Can we be God himself? Is that what this text is teaching? We have a God-like authority on this earth that God has graciously given to us as part of being made in his image over this world because of our specialness that God has made us. But it is to be used so wisely. And that's where we discover pretty quick that we are not God because all of us have examples both in our own personal experience and certainly with those who have led us that we are not gods. We have, the, we have the innate ability to grow into God's likeness more and more, but we cannot be gods ourselves. When it says here that you are gods, it's this idea that you are part of the heavenly host. You are part of this special creation, but we cannot be gods ourselves. In fact, we are, we are judged by how we live and by how we carry out our authority. And so just to use one example, James 3 says to teachers, teachers of the Bible, not many of you should become teachers for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Authority is a gift of God to be used with extreme wisdom under his care. But so many of us have examples of poor uses of that human authority. And that's why God is coming into Psalm 82 in judgment of this divine council. It's a courtroom scene. In the midst of the gods or of this host, he holds judgment. And that's why he questions them. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? That's on every human authority. And that's certainly on on heavenly beings as well who have some kind of influence over us. Use your authority wisely under God's judgment. But if you don't, you will be judged for it. And so that's the last point we're going to get into is that there's more to justice than we probably think to. You know, we think of justice as something all of us can get behind in our modern world. The cries for things to be right. The, th- the cry for things to be restored to protest when people are oppressed, to fight for our rights, to speak up for ourselves. But as we turn to those around us or or on behalf of those we love who are being brought low, who are experiencing injustice or pain, we realize that if we turn to a human leader to be our champion, that they will let us down. That if we turn to a medium or a prayer or a spirit or some kind of spirituality to deflect us from our problems and to bring us into a tranquil state that that also will be limit. There'll be limits to that. Or if we turn to ourselves and our own independence to speak up for our own rights and to take on the mantle of justice ourselves, that we will be burdened and wearied pretty quickly. So there is an ultimate right in the world that we all feel is missing, but how do we get it? You know, the word for justice here, like in verse three, give justice to the weak, is actually really the word judge. 
So this text is really leading us more so into who is the judge or where is the ultimate judge of right and wrong? Not so much how do we find justice ourselves. Judgment is one step deeper than justice because it's sided on a person who has to be able to judge between good and bad, right and wrong. And in verse five, we see that we all fail as humans or even as created beings in this. We don't have knowledge or understanding. We walk about in darkness. And because of that, the foundations of the earth are shaking. And so to achieve justice, we need an actual ultimate judge then that we can really trust. More than a rogue, rebellious, divine counsel, more than spirits who deceive us, more than sinful fallen humans. Though we all have a a capability and calling to lead with justice, we can't live up to that calling and they haven't either. And that's why the Bible's answer to this quandary is the one who quoted Psalm 82 and John 10. When he was accused of blasphemy, he's the one who pointed to this Psalm to say, we're all looking for the judge. We're all looking for the one who will make things right, who's able to carry that on his shoulders. And that's where the Bible just beautifully unlocks for us one who is able to take on that. One whom it said over and over and over in the New Testament, all authority has been given to him and all things are subject to him. Jesus Christ, the son of God, the perfect man, the perfect human who was God himself. Hebrews 1 and 2 talk about Uh, In these last days, God has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things. And later on in in chapter two, it says, at the present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who was for a little while made lower than the angels, Jesus crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. And so Jesus is the one who became subject to all the powers of the heavenly host and took all that on himself. He's the one who took all the authority that you and I were supposed to live with as the second Adam and lived it perfectly. And as Paul beautifully says, he has put all things under his feet and has been given head over all things, the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and is all. Jesus is the perfect judge of God, the righteous one, who died in our place to defeat the evil by taking it on himself. And so what do we do with this? If that's the answer, how do we how do we live? How do we walk out of here? And that's what I've been wrestling with all week. You know, what does it mean to live in a spiritual world and to look to Jesus as the one who is? the ultimate authority? I really think the only answer for this is Ephesians 6, which is, I'll just read a part of it for you. You know, Paul says, realizing we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, the cosmic powers over this present darkness and the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. That's our battle that we deal with secretly, mysteriously. So first, acknowledging that. But then what do we do with it? Secondly, 
Paul says the very next verse, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Ephesians 6 is our, is our guide to the battle that many of us don't even know we have to fight. Helping us to remember that the authority of the one who has had all things in subjection to him, Jesus, has won the battle for us. But this delusion of the spiritual world that we live in is constantly waging against us. So put on the full armor of God, the scriptures, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, all the things that Ephesians 6 leads us into. And trusting that, as the prophet Jeremiah says, quote, the gods who did not make the heavens and the earth shall perish from the earth and from under the heavens. That because Jesus died on the cross and rose on the third day, those powers have no ultimate say over you. No ultimate authority over the church. But you are free in Christ. Free to wage the battle knowing that you are victorious in him. And free to look to the God of gods. So it's my prayer that this will find relevance in your life more and more as we go out from this place that God would lead you graciously. So let's pray to that end as we finish. Let's go to God in prayer for a moment. God, we begin our closing prayer by praying verse eight. Stand up, O God, and judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. We see that verse as fulfilled in the person of Jesus that he has stood up on our behalf. He stands in the middle. He's delivering justice. He's rescuing the weak. He's delivering us from the hand of the wicked. And he's ushering us into heaven. It's his authority that we live under. So I pray that for each person here that they would know the covering they have in the person of Jesus and that they are part of the inheritance of God by trusting and having faith in him. So God, we trust in you for justice. Judge the earth. Show the goodness of your name in all the earth. And help us to walk away here knowing that we still have a place in that authority as well through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit in our life. Bring clarity where there's confusion this morning. And bring freedom where there is burden. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen.